Welcome, everyone. This is Carlos from Seedcamp. I'm here today with Christoph Jans. Uh, Christoph Jans has built an amazing reputation as one of the premier VCs in software as a service. But he didn't come through that just through luck. It's a long history of experience uh, as an investor, but also as an entrepreneur. And we always like to start off with the background behind the person. Christoph, uh, first of all, welcome. And secondly, Maybe you can start off by just sharing what you studied in school and what did you do? What was your first job? Yeah. Hi, Carlos. Thanks for having me here. Hi, Seedcamp uh, fans. Thanks Thanks for listening in. Yeah. So I, you mentioned like the fact that I'm uh, like a more or less successful SaaS investor now is not related to luck. I think maybe we'll touch back later on that because I think actually there has been a lot of luck. But uh, maybe let me try to answer your uh, your previous question first. So you you asked about like what what did I do at school and so on. Um, so and and what was my first job? So it's interestingly that's kind of related in a sense that while I was still a student at um, the gymnasium, which I guess is what like what's high school or or, or so somewhere else, I, I already had my first business at that time. Um, it wasn't really called a startup back then. I, I wasn't aware of the term, at least at the time. Um, and the, the, the first thing I, like the first kind of uh, business or like student project that I started was that I bought and, and sold uh, Commodore C64 home computers, which Carlos, I don't know, you might still remember. Yeah. Um, I guess a lot of the the founders out there are probably too young to remember them, but this is was kind of the uh, the most popular device at that time. So and, and I, I noticed that um, there was a very large spread between the prices of these computers in the classified ad newspapers of that time, and, and remember this was like approximately 10 years or so before eBay, almost 10 years before the internet. So it, it was an extremely inefficient local market. So what I did was simply I, I bought a couple of these used Commodore C64 machines or related uh, home computers and sold them uh, with a 50% or 100% uh, premium. So that was the very first thing I did. And I think I started that at the age of 12 or so and did that for um, a couple of years and I think I made a couple of hundred Deutsche Mark uh, in, in profits per month back then which was actually a lot of money for a 12 or 13 year old boy at that time and then I did one thing after the other really the next thing I did was with a with a with a good friend of mine we, we started a and mail order uh, company and uh, sold like shareware and public domain software for the Commodore Amiga, which was the successor of the uh, Commodore C64. So we built that mail order order company, bought ads on in Amiga magazines, and uh, sent out those um, floppy disks. Um, and did a bunch of other things in between and before and and after until. In 19, 
97, I started my, my first internet company, um, one of the first price comparison shopping engines named DealPilot. So I basically never had a real job. I never applied for, for a job. And I think um, I didn't, I, I never earned a salary until, I don't know, maybe until a few years ago, actually. Which is which is probably like a way to start a clean slate with a, a a new company. You didn't come in with any preconceived notions of organizational structures or or any other sort of legacy thinking. How did you how did you scale up DealPilot? What was it kind of where was it when it was acquired by Shopping.com? What was the number of employees, the size, any any stats that would be helpful? Sort of understanding how you evolved as a founder during that period. Sure. Um, so it was still a pretty small company, actually. I think we were maybe uh, around like 15 to 20 people or so at the time of the acquisition. And I don't really recall the the numbers, uh, like in terms of vis- visitors or any other key metrics. But if you compare them to a, a startup today, I, I'm sure it was tiny. Um, and it was also in a in a world or in a time where... A, just a tiny, tiny fraction of today's internet users um, were online or maybe alive for that matter. Um, so it was really a, a very, very different different time. Um, it was a very exciting time though. So um, uh, basically we, we started this company in 1997, one of the first comparison shopping engines. We, we focused on the US market because German people really didn't buy online yet at that time. We uh, raised a, a very small amount of uh, money from my dad, which made him an, an angel investor, not even though he didn't know the term. And a bit later, we then raised the first uh, small round of venture capital from um, a firm called Bertelsmann Ventures, which is still actually still around today, they they changed their name two times, but they are still around under the name eVentures, based in in San Francisco now, with offices in 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 Hamburg um, as well. By the way, mm. so what followed after that? Then we sold the company to Shopping.com um, in around. 2000 or 2001, um, Shopping.com then um, went public and later on was acquired by eBay. Um, so it, it's still part of eBay up until this up up until today. And at some point, my um, my co-founder and I left the company and did a couple of uh, things, like some very first small. Um, now, did, did you leave the, did you leave the company? Uh, after a period of time, or did you have like a lockout period where you had to stay in order to fulfill the acquisition? And and maybe you can just talk a little bit about what it's like for a founder uh, sort of transitioning into a larger organization and, and sort of the things that may have had to change as part of just delivering on the KPIs that you were requested as part of the acquisition. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, there was a, a lockup and we continued to um, work under the new leadership for, for some time. And I think it's difficult. I think it's something which almost every founder probably experiences as part of an acquisition that kind of like the entrepreneurial fire. I don't know if that's a good, if, if that term actually exists in, in English, but I think it's kind of gone after an acquisition. So I think most founders are just not made to 
work for big companies or for for other managers, which I think which which I think is why many founders basically wait until like the lockup expires or until most of their options or, or shares are vested and then leave and start something new. And it was kind of like that for us as well. So you left and then you went and started PageFlix. I, the, not immediately. I did a couple of things in between. I also took some took some time off, um, spent a year in the Caribbean. And a, a bit later, I started PageFlix then, um, which was one of the first personalizable start pages, a bit like my my Yahoo or iGoogle or, or NetVibes, which were our competitors at that time. And it was it was really interesting from a technical point of view, because back then, and that was around 2005, the web was still very static. And uh, PageFlix was one of the first applications that used Ajax technology. Um, I, I think the term is actually not really familiar anymore today. Um, but that's the name of the technology that we used back then to allow the user to drag and drop uh, stuff around the page. And it was also much more dynamic in the sense that the page um, included, that you could include content from uh, all kinds of sources using RSS feeds and APIs and so on. Um, so it was pretty interesting from a technical point of view. Also, we got an initial uh, following and, and, and a very loyal and excited user base. Um, but in the end, the, the company never got as big or as successful as everybody hoped. And, but you managed to still be able to sell it. Um, we did, yes. Um, so at, we, we raised uh, a round from uh, Baldotton Capital, which at, at that time was still benchmark Europe. And we eventually then sold the company in early 2008. Um, and it, it wasn't an, a big exit, though. So the, the first exit that I had um, at a really, really young age was actually, for me, financially more uh, rewarding than, than the second one. Hmm. We know that afterwards you kind of started going down the path of angel investing after these two companies. But if you kind of re rewind back to to the time when you were at Deal Pilot and maybe PageFlix, what was it like coming back into a startup, having already built one, been financially freed, and then you know having time off? Was it something that was just because you felt that you had to come back to it, or was it something that you know you 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 kind of felt like? You had there was a mission there. What what was the the, the reason behind yeah. creating another company? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's just very natural for me. I've basically been founding companies or trying stuff um, ever since I can uh, remember. And even during that year in the Caribbean that I mentioned, I like I helped a a founder start a company and and get off the ground. So I think. Probably like many other entrepreneurs as well, I just have this entrepreneurial virus that makes you want to start new things all the time. And when it comes to the merger and acquisition process, which a lot of founders are probably exposed to way too late, mm. uh, you've done this twice now on a personal basis, not just helping your portfolio companies, but actually having gone through it. What would you say like the top three things that you would give a young Christoph advice on uh, having gone through that all over again? 
good question. You mean specifically regarding the exit? Yeah, both yeah. both of the exit for Deal Pilot and Page Flakes. Going, if you could yeah. go back, rewind time, and say, young Christoph, these keep these three things in mind as you're going to enter this M and A process with Shopping.com or with Live Universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good question, and I, I actually think I learned more about the whole thing in my experience as an investor over the last over the course of the last eight years or so. Um, I I think you're at a deal pilot and page flex with the with the benefit of hindsight. I think we we made so many mistakes, we had so much luck, we did so many things wrong that it's kind of a surprising that it still ended relatively well in the end. If I like include my the expertise that I've gained since then, like in the last more like eight years or so, um, I think that maybe allows me to maybe give some some advice or answer the question in in, in a better way it, it i think it's a bit hard nevertheless to give some generic advice or just nail it really down to to three points it depends so much on the situation and it depends so much on um whether whether you have a startup that is really hot and everybody wants to buy it, um, that's a totally different situation from where maybe your company is doing okay and it's more you're, you're looking for a buyer and it's more that you want to sell this company than somebody else um, wants to buy it. I think that, that makes a huge difference. One of the things that I um, noticed in your blog post is that there is one that you titled, What are the six things that startups could do? to preempt 90% of the due diligence. And maybe that's one angle that we could take in terms of answering that very question. Because in that blog post, you cover a lot of things that are uh, perhaps things that might have been able to help you during that M&A process. That's a good point, yes. Um, and the the blog post was originally geared towards uh, venture capital rounds, not acquisitions, but you're, you're right. I think a lot of this applies to M&A situations as well. Um, I think... The more you can do to preempt due diligence and, and be ready for the questions that a, an investor or an acquirer, for that matter, will ask, um, the, the better you are, for sure. So I, I think you cover like key metrics and things that you um, are looking for as a potential investor, but also as a potential acquirer, like MRR, cost of goods sold, cost of acquisition, you mentioned charts with movements in MRR, mm -hmm. cohort analysis, a financial plan. You talk about customer acquisition channels and sales pipeline. As you start, if you, if, again, going back to that, that uh, situation, speaking to young Christoph, and you're thinking about those six attributes of your advice, how would you encourage other young founders to start thinking through creating these six things early on in a company's journey, especially when they probably in some cases haven't even started getting a product market fit. Yeah, yeah. And I think you should look into all of this sooner rather than later because none of these items that you just mentioned are somehow artificial or useless requests by investors or acquirers. I mean, I think there's a reason why an investor wants to take a look at your cohort analysis. There is also an, a reason why he wants to see your MRR movement. I, uh, and, and the same goes for your customer acquisition channels and, and those other items. Um, I think all these things tell an investor something about the health of your, your business and about 
your ability or at least your probability to to continue to grow and and therefore this should all be stuff that you as a founder should be very interested in anyway so i, I don't think you have to put in a lot of work or a lot of additional extra work just to please anybody i think it's really i think there is a lot of overlap between what investors want and what you should be interested in anyway um of course it's a question of when in the life of your company you should spend how much uh, time or maybe money on uh, looking into what kind of metrics and while while you're still at a stage where you don't have product market fit you probably don't have to worry about a lot of that 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 i i would agree with that um i think while you're while you really don't have product market fit yet um you should probably look primarily into metrics that give you a better indication of whether or not you're moving towards product market fit and and that might be activity related metrics mainly or maybe nps or or other metrics which are which are not really financial or mon- of or of a monetary nature yeah and that's a very good point that i want to explore and we're jumping around a little bit in terms of your chronology because you know you you moved into the investing world as you mentioned earlier around 2008 and then of course since then you've invested in some amazing companies like zendesk and free agent and gecko board and you know maybe we can refer to some of those as examples and we'll come back to kind of how you started in the investing world. But I just want to dig deeper into that, what you just said right now, which is the early days in KPIs and key metrics, especially for companies that don't really have the ultimate KPI. Let's say in some cases, it might be a business where the ultimate KPI might be liquidity in a marketplace. But before you have liquidity in that marketplace, you will need to have supply side capacity so that when you turn on demand side, there is some liquidity to happen. And how do you as an investor today help uh, in the early stages of companies that you invest in? Maybe, maybe you invest after this has already happened, so maybe this is not a relevant question, but, but I'm sure that you do invest in a few where you have to help them walk through what the appropriate short-term KPIs that will then proxy the longer-term KPIs. How do you do that? How do you work with companies doing that? Yeah, yeah that's right. And we definitely uh, occasionally at least invest in companies at, at these early stages where there is no revenue yet and where you're really trying to figure out um, what is the product market fit or it's a marketplace pre-liquidity and then you have to ask yourself what is a good proxy or a good indicator of product market fit or um, uh, liquidity but it's still a couple of steps away from monetization and I think founders are in the best position and are usually pretty good at um, finding out what these metrics are, and I think we can help by maybe answering, uh, sorry, by asking some questions or by pointing in some directions. But since since founders really know um, what their product is about and how uh, what the intended uses, I think they are really good at also figuring out what are uh, right metrics that correlate with the intended usage of the product. Do you revisit these with? founders you're working with over a period of time or is this something where you you do it on a weekly basis monthly basis at the beginning and then how do you evolve that over the course of the the company's history yes sure we i mean we work together with the founders in our portfolio quite closely it could be either a a monthly call or meeting or in the beginning even earlier and then of course in in addition to these standing calls or meetings there's always all all kinds of more like ad hoc 
communication, sometimes on a daily basis during the first six to 12 months or so. And uh, to your question of whether, like, do we revisit those metrics? Yes, of course. I mean, sometimes maybe you define some metrics in the beginning, but then over time you actually figure out that those are not the right ones because maybe um, the the focus of the product shifts and uh, and therefore also what the key metrics are that indicate usage of the product um, change. So if we go back now to where we left off, the, the sort of 2008 era, you are now uh, fresh out of um, Page Flakes and you know you you came together with some other friends angels um, tell us a little bit about the early days of what now has become point nine but was previously not point nine and I'm drawing a blank what it was called but I remember very well that it was what it was it was called something different than point nine that's right yeah but maybe you can you can just walk us through kind of what what happened there sure um, so after pitch legs I started to think about like what could be the the next thing that that I'm going to do and it wasn't quite clear to me if I should start another company or do some some investing first and while looking for new ideas and uh, and startups and, and inspirations I uh, came across a website called Zendesk and immediately thought that this looks very interesting. I I liked the the way they presented the the product. It was um, at least at that time still something pretty new that an a B two B SaaS product was presented so nicely in, in a highly consumerized fashion. Um, so Zendesk caught my interest. Um, I reached out to them. I I met the founders and and pretty quickly we concluded. Um, that it would make sense for me to join the the company as an, an, an investor and an advisor. Um, it was good timing because they they were actually starting to uh, they they had recently uh, raised a a very small friends and family uh, round, but were basically still looking for some more money. So so that it was was good timing, and and that is really what um, what got me into B two B SaaS. Um, so back to your original, like to your very first point, that it's not so much about luck. I mean, this has been an extremely lucky, uh, fortunate um, pick. Like, I mean, it's it's basically been my my first real my my first real investment, and it was Zendesk. So definitely a lot of luck, but I think you just have to uh, try many, many, many times, and with a lot of persistence over many years or decades to decades uh, to give to give a luck uh, a chance so to speak um like regarding like the early days of pitch uh, sorry point nine so this was still a couple of years uh, before point nine came into existence i did that investment in zendesk got into b2b SaaS, tried to find other companies that were somewhat similar to Zendesk or had some similar similar characteristics, and made made a couple of um, other investments around 2008 to 2010 or so. Um, and during those days, I then uh, got introduced to uh, Pavel Hutsinski, who at that time was investing. 
um, or was managing the investment activities of a German company builder called Team Europe Ventures. Um, so that is probably the, the the name that you remembered, and that's right. Yep. Um, and we started to uh, look at potential deals together, and um, made a couple of investments together, and started to work together uh, more closely over time. And at some point, and I think this was in early two thousand eleven, we we decided that it would actually make sense to. Uh, to join forces also in a more formal way and to to spin out the investment activities of Team Europe Ventures into its own dedicated fund. And we rebranded it to 0.9 Capital and, and raised a bigger fund. And yeah, that's basically the origin of, of 0.9. And that's um, what I've been doing in the last couple of years. And how big is Point Now these days? You mean in terms of dollars or employees or portfolio companies? All of the above. All of, All the, of above. the above. Okay. Um, so we have about 100 million uh, euro under management across three funds. We're 11 people, although we will we'll be a few more soon as we're um, about to hire a couple of people. And if you count all portfolio companies across the uh, three funds, then that will, I, I don't have the precise number in front of me, but it'll be a, around 65 to 70 companies. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's obviously a lot of companies. How do you, how do you manage to, you know, continue to, um, to help the companies over their journey? Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's probably uh, a question that could be asked of any any investor, including Seedcamp. Is yep. is how do you continue to add value um, to the portfolio over the course of time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely um, a fair question. And I mean, obviously, this portfolio of sixty-five to seventy companies or so hasn't been created overnight. It has been created over the last. Um, six or seven years since that also includes some of these pre-0.9 companies. Um, so it's been several years in the making and some of the companies that we invested in several years ago really don't require our attention so much anymore because now they've, um, they've raised several rounds of venture capital from other investors. They have great boards, great advisors, great management teams and so on. So it's quite often that we mainly help within the first um, one or two years after making an investment and then companies um, basically don't really need us as much anymore or, it, or, or we find it harder to uh, add, add value or at least add incremental value in, in addition to other investors which, which are on board. Um, nevertheless, um, it's definitely um, a lot of work and we... Uh, we built a team over the years to um, to leverage our own time. So now, um, for example, we have a full-time person um, who's a who's our head of talent who does nothing else than trying to help our portfolio companies get better at recruiting and helping them find candidates. So so that's a I think a, a big big help for the for our portfolio. Um, we also have a couple of 
um, advisors that work closely with us and that can help our portfolio companies um, in addition to our core team, of course. Um, but yeah, what I'm trying to say is it's not just Pavel and myself um, helping the portfolio. There is also a, a team behind that. Um, and on top of that, um, the because we um, have built that portfolio that also allows us to um, to unlock some additional value adds which we otherwise wouldn't be able to provide and, and specifically this is because we we uh, try pretty hard to connect the founders of all of our portfolio companies together whether that's online through um, our um, honey uh, website or, or or slack or or other tools as well as offline through events so there is also um, a lot of uh, um, like founders helping each others um, involved, as, as I'm sure is the case for, for Seedcamp and obviously with this big Seedcamp mentor network as well. Yeah, and how how has you know you were talking a little bit about how your processes have evolved because of your growing portfolio, but how has your investment thinking changed as well? Because I mean, you continue to find amazing companies, and that's partially a function of you know your prowess as an investor, but also your um, brand and also uh, perhaps this evolution. And there is this blog post that you wrote that's really amazing that breaks things down into five different types of startups, everything from flies to elephants. And maybe you can walk the, the audience through what is each one of the sort of animals, for one, and what they represent. But two, also, what is the happy... Uh, happy zone for point nine in terms of the kinds of companies that you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I think our, um, like the way we look at or look for companies has certainly evolved over time um, just because we've seen so many more companies now. Like when when I saw Zendesk, I didn't, previously look at 100 other SaaS companies which I could use as a, as a reference point. Um, today, when we see a potential SaaS investment or also other um, investments that we can consider an investment in, we, of course, we, we sit on a lot of data and experience which allows us to benchmark companies and which just, I think, um, allows us to make um, better decisions than than we would be able to make otherwise. And again, that, that just shows how much luck I had investing in, in Zendesk without that kind of framework um, in place um, eight, eight years ago or so. Um, regarding the, the blog post that you mentioned, which I titled Five Ways to, to Build a $100 Million Business. Um, so what I tried to picture in this post is um, like how many companies do you have to acquire in as, as customers in order to build a 100 million dollar business like like a business with a hundred million dollars in, in in annually recurring revenues and the the number is of course it's a bit arbitrary you could you could argue why it's not 50 million or um, why it's not 200 million and, and I think it's hard to argue for a very specific number um, but I think it shows the ballpark um, like if you build a business with a hundred million in recurring revenues then you 
have a have a good chance of selling that company for at least a couple of hundred million dollars, maybe up to a, a billion dollars. And this is like obviously the kind of the type of company that venture capital investors look for. And I should also say that that doesn't mean that you have to build a company, not even that you like this, not even that you have to want to build a company like this. You only it's really only relevant if you're if you have the ambition to build such a large company and if you want to go the VC route and and most com for most companies that's probably not the not the right path so i think it's really only relevant if you decided as a founder for yourself that you want to go really really big you want to build a, a company that could be worth billions of dollars and your goal is really to to go after that that big outcome and if that's what you want to do and you want to think about how could you get to um, 100 million dollars in in revenues um, then one way to to think about it is to um, to look at your your customer and your your ACV like your um, your annual contract value and determine how many customers do you need to get there and obviously it's a simple obvious math it's a huge simplification um, but nevertheless it seemed like this way of looking at it um, resonated quite uh, quite well with um, with a lot of people and although the math itself is simple and obvious I think it has some interesting implications which I can talk about in a minute um, so I, I I used five types of of animals um, inspired by the terminology which sales teams often use when they talk about different types of customers to, to illustrate the point here. Um, I called companies that pay you a, a, a six-figure amount per year, like $100,000 per year or more, um, the elephants. Um, there's a typical term used by, by salespeople for these really, um, really, really large accounts. And then one layer above that, um, companies with an ACV of 10K per year would then be the deers, and then next one on the scale would be the rabbit that pay you just a thousand dollars per year, and then the mice which pay you just a hundred dollars per year, and 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 lastly, um, the, the flies which are then not typically not B two B customers but consumers that you can monetize at about ten dollar per user per year, whether that's through advertising or or, or something else. And then there is obviously a very simple inverse correlation between the number of between the ACV and the customer number of customers that you need in order to get to this one hundred million dollar outcome. And it tells you that you need only one thousand of these large enterprise customers to get there on the one end of the spectrum, or ten million active consumers on the other end of the spectrum, and then obviously some numbers in between. Um, and I think. Again, this is an—it's a simple, obvious math. But the interesting implication, I think, is that if you charge your customers only, let's say, a thousand dollars per year, which is actually not that untypical for a B2B SaaS company that targets SMBs, then you need one hundred thousand of these small businesses to to get to the scale that you want to get. And if you think about what does that mean in terms of the um, the leads that you have to acquire, given 
certain assumptions or data on conversion rates, um, I think then it triggers some interesting and, and potentially uh, useful thinking thinking or planning, which might help you think through whether whether you have a good plan or not. So one of the things that you uh, talk about in other blog posts is the correlation between lifetime value and cost of acquisition. And you kind of refer to that across both your KPI dashboard, you know, everything that's aggregated in terms of top uh, revenue generating and, and other activities, and down to the cost of acquisition. And in this blog post about the five different types of startups you can create, you're kind of implying that as well, because in effect, you need to be able to generate this amount of revenue post, you know, any costs of selling that revenue. And one of the numbers that sticks in my head from reading several of your blog posts is having companies that aspire to have a lifetime value over a cost of acquisition ratio of 3x or more. And maybe you can walk us through, I mean, 3x, you know, you can retroactively kind of come up with like a rationale why 3x is interesting for investors, whatnot. But maybe you can walk us through, if if we boil down sort of the, 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 mechanics of software as a service, why 3x or greater is really kind of the inflection point for value creation and for interest from an investor. Yeah. Um, for me, 3x is is really a rule of thumb and ideally it should be significantly more than 3x. Um, if you really want to know why is, why is it 3x, why, why is it not 2.5x? Uh, or I think it's um, it's because you need, firstly, you need some some margin for error. Um, and it's obviously not only about customer acquisition costs and customer lifetime value. You also have some 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 other costs, like you have some fixed costs and, and investments into product and, and engineering. So you need, first of all, some some margin to recover for for these other costs. Then I think you also need some margin for uncertainty because the customer lifetime value is usually an, an estimate based on your current churn rate, which might go up over time. Um, so you need some margin uh, for cost and error on the one side. And then in the end, you still want to have a solid return on your investment based on like on a, on a certain like discount rate regarding the value of future cash flows or whatever you think is a good return on equity. So I think there is probably a more scientific answer to that, which which I don't have uh, handy, but which I'm sure exists or which you can calculate. Um, I'm really using the 3x or 4x or maybe even a higher one more as a, as a rule of thumb because it kind of makes more or less intuitive sense to me based on some of these factors. Yeah, no, that, that makes absolute sense. I'm going to jump around a little sure. bit, and I want to ask a couple of questions that have come up um, from Twitter that are actually quite interesting, maybe a little bit deviation from sort of this numeric conversation. Um, Jacob Marovd, actually, who used to work at Seedcamp, is uh, uh, now in Denmark, asks, what, if any, are the advantages of starting a SaaS company that is targeting a global audience, but what are the advantages of starting it in the EU? Uh, the advantage of starting it in Europe, yeah. What's the yeah, question? A, yeah. a global a yeah. global SaaS company yeah. started in the EU. What are the yeah. advantages, yeah. if any? Yeah. I think there is a very significant cost advantage if you compare it to starting it in the Bay Area, which which I guess is the 
like the underlying um, question behind this? Like, is it? I'm assuming it's U.S. versus Europe. Um, like, it's it's so incredibly expensive to hire and retain developers in the, in the U.S. and especially in the Bay Area, as, as I'm sure you know or you've seen as well with some of your companies. Um, that nowadays, and I think actually increasingly nowadays, it's, 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 I think you have a huge cost advantage of, of building an engineering team over here. Several of our portfolio companies have built amazing engineering teams in, in countries such as France, Spain, uh, or, or Germany, and they would probably have to pay at least... Uh, at least 2x the amount if they build those teams in in the valley where you have to compete with Twitter and Uber and, and Facebook and, and all these um, companies which can basically throw an infinite amount of, of money after after potential employees. So I, I would say that is the um, that is the core advantage. Um, and if I had to ask maybe German, a follow-up German. question to that, because if the core advantage is cost, and another maybe core advantage uh, of that cost basis is that you also have a, a greater international audience around you, how is it that you recommend, or what is it that you recommend startups that are starting, let's say, for example, in Germany and wishing to go outside of Germany? Is your is the is the standard recommendation? You know, go for the biggest market. You know, in this case, it might be the U.S., where the SaaS product might be consumed at the higher the higher price. Or is it expanding into the larger EU zone because of the advantages of the EU zone? What, what's yeah, your yeah. thinking of that? So, unless it's a very special situation with a very local product, such as accounting, and and maybe accounting is actually the only category where that applies, we we really think that. SaaS winners are made on a global basis. So we don't think it's the right strategy to build a SaaS company for the German market or for the French market or the British market or any of these European markets or not even for the, for the European market as a whole. We really think that if you want to uh, be a one of the leading players in any given space, and again, accounting is maybe the exception to that rule, you should target a, a global audience. Um, and, and that means you have to have a strategy for the US since around about half of the entire uh, software spending worldwide happens in the US. Um, I think you have to become the winner in, in that market as well. So as much as I like building engineering and, and product teams in Europe, I think you do need to have uh, salespeople in the U.S. at some point, maybe even your HQ in the U.S. Um, and again, there can be some exceptions, like if it's really a highly consumerized product that is marketed online and where you don't need any salespeople on the ground or on the floor or, or on the ground or on the phone, then maybe you can do it remotely. But I would say for the vast majority of B2B SaaS companies, they, they need a presence in, in the U.S. Hmm. Excellent. Well, Max Mersch asks, what industry signals to look for when deciding if a vertical SaaS company can succeed over existing horizontal SaaS providers? Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, we're, we're big fans of 
vertical SaaS offerings. We, we are, for example, investors in a company out of Canada called Clio, which, which is now the, the leading cloud-based practice management solution for lawyers. Um, and I think if you have a vertical SaaS offering, it really allows you to speak to your audience in, in a much, much better way than a generic or horizontal provider will ever be able to. Um, just the, the way you can craft your messages in the product, on your marketing website, in your entire communication and advertising, I think gives you a, a big advantage over non-verticalized providers. Um, so I think there is an opportunity to build vertical niche software players in, in SaaS in, in a whole variety of markets. I think maybe the only caveat is, are these markets big enough to really build a large company? Um, and if they are not, then it'll be hard to uh, to get the right funding to build a large R&D team to, to fund those operations. Um, so... I don't know if there are any specific industry signals. It's an interesting question, which I think I would have to spend some more time thinking about. But I think maybe the size of the uh, of the niche is a is a relevant is a relevant factor um, to to determine whether you can have a large and sustainable business in in, in a vertical niche. Yeah, it makes sense. Heather K. Margolis asks: uh, There are a lot of channel partners that are being bombarded mm -hmm. whenever startups are approaching them. How can the SaaS company better attract partners to sell their solutions in such a highly competitive environment for finding really good channel partners for distribution? Yeah. So I've basically almost never seen channel partnerships work in SaaS. That's the, that's the simple and I don't know, maybe counterintuitive or, or surprising answer. I've, I've almost never seen it work. Um, and again, there are a few exceptions, but I, I wouldn't bet on it. I think you have to generate the demand yourself. Um, you probably also have to sell yourself. And maybe if it's a large enterprise um, solution, maybe you can outsource um, some of the professional services to um, a value-added reseller or to a channel partner. But I think you shouldn't expect that any of these partners will generate significant revenue for, significant revenue for you, at least not until you're big anyways. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, look, there's a lot of great other um, questions that have come in, but I want to have a chance to wrap things up with one maybe last question that maybe is comprehensive in, in, in many of the things that you've talked about. But if we take the first 100 days of a company's relationship with you after you've invested, what are the key things that you help them with or you focus on or you um, encourage as part of those first 100 days post-money? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, and it's, yeah, like the first 100 days is definitely something we um, we. We, we really, which are really top of mind for us. Um, so what we often do with founders after we in, invest is we have an initial like meeting or, or workshop. Um, 
and try to define um, what could what could be the goals. Maybe not necessarily for the next 100 days. I think it's usually a, a somewhat longer time frame. It's typically um, a year, sometimes maybe broken down into shorter time in intervals, and then think about like where where do we all think should the product be and how many customers should we have uh, around that time? Um, where do we want to be in terms of MRR or, or other relevant metrics? Um, what are the, the hires that we, um, or the, the team wants to make? What kind of marketing uh, or, or sales initiatives um, should we have in place or should we at least um, be, be trying by that time? So we try to um help the founders um, create a, a rough roadmap which touches all of the important areas of the company's development. And, and then we just try to um, help out in, in those areas where the founders need help. And, and that obviously varies um, a lot. Um, different founding teams have different strengths and weaknesses and therefore need help or support in, in different areas. Um, sometimes, um, like it's, let's say it's a highly product engineering focused founder team that really hasn't thought a lot about go to market um, in, in the beginning. In, in that case, we'll obviously try to connect them with some experienced people from our portfolio or from our, our network to, to talk about specific things like how could a content marketing strategy look like or what how does your um, lifecycle email plan look like. So we, we try to um, identify um, gaps in the best practices, if you will, because I think nowadays there is a set of best practices which actually um, is a big difference to like the early days of Zendesk where companies had to in invent pretty much everything. Um, today, it's it's pretty clear what you have to do in terms of a content marketing strategy and lifecycle emails and lead generation and, and, and sales and so on. So the, the, what has been really, really innovative maybe eight years ago, I think is table stakes today. So you have to, you absolutely have to cover these basics and then you can try to to innovate in, in other ways. But I think we mainly try to um, help the founders um, cover, the, cover the basics in terms of all of these areas and then let the founders innovate in those areas where they are really strong in. And, and that's often, often product, but it could also be go-to-market. Wow, great insight. Um, thanks again for your time, Christoph. This has been amazing. It's a privilege to be able to, to tap into your wisdom uh, as part of this conversation. And for those of you that are listening, please go and check out uh, Christoph's uh, blog. It's christophjans.blogpost.com. Um, it is full of amazing tools, including one of my favorites, which is the KPI dashboard for early stage SaaS startups, which a lot of our startups use as well. So thanks again, Christoph. And until next time, guys. Thank you very much, Carlos. Thanks for inviting me.